welcome to Work Interrupted, a new podcast looking at work life after COVID and asking what next. I'm Christina Patterson, and I'll be talking to people from a wide range of working backgrounds to find out how their own work is changing in the light of current challenges, what they think will happen to the work landscape, and how we can make work work better for each other and for us. Today, I'm so pleased to welcome Margaret Heffernan, entrepreneur, CEO and author of seven best-selling books exploring what matters and what works in business, work and life. Her TED Talks have been watched by more than 12 million people. Her book Willful Blindness was named by the FT as one of the most important business books of the decade. Her new book, Uncharted, How to Map the Future, literally could not be more prescient or more relevant to where we are now. I met Margaret last year when I was talking at a conference about being fired and joining the gig economy. I felt incredibly exposed and she was extremely kind. Since then, I've read a few of her books and have discovered that she's a brilliant thinker and a profoundly inspirational person. In this podcast, she talks, among other things, about online gin tastings, digital clusterfucks and filming with rabbits. So, Margaret, you had to cancel your own book launch lunch because of a coronavirus pandemic you'd actually predicted in the book. How does it feel to be the nation's Cassandra? Well, it's interesting and it's not the first time it's happened. I mean, when I brought out Willful Blindness, that was almost instantly followed by an NHS care home scandal and by the phone hacking scandal. Uh, both of which were exemplary instances of willful blindness. And the book that followed that, A Bigger Prize, was a big argument about how competition really doesn't work and how we need to get better at collaboration, which I can't help but notice is a big theme of argument now about the need to collaborate internationally around things like epidemics and climate change. So so, I mean, it's an interesting thing. It's, you know, Cassandra was cursed. And I sometimes wish when I come to my um, publishers and say I have this idea of something I want to write about, I wish that instead of looking at me like I was crazy, they'd just say, well, you have, you know, you have a track record on this. So I guess you may as well go ahead. <laughs> I mean, well, yeah. because, so it's, you know, it's also interesting because, you know, in 2007, I had spent almost a year researching a big book on resilience. And, um, and there was not a publisher in the world that wanted to publish it on the grounds that we don't need to worry about resilience anymore because nothing bad is ever going to happen again. So, um, so it's a mixed blessing. And of course, you know, to be a little more serious about it, I would wish that the, that I'd been wrong about epidemics, of course. Um, but the thing about epidemics is not that I'm a gifted forecaster, which I'm not, but epidemics are always going to happen. They are always happening. The difficulty with them is they're impossible to predict specifically. So we know they're going to happen. We just don't know when they're going to break out, where they're going to break out, or what the pathogen is going to be. And that puts all of our conventional planning uh, processes into kind of a hysterical panic because planning is all about where, when, what, and it's all about efficiency. And if you apply that mindset to epidemics, you get absolutely nowhere. 
So mm -hmm. I think, you know, I wrote a lot about epidemics because it seemed to me like the perfect example of what we mean when we talk about uncertainty, which is not any vague old thing that could happen. It's stuff which we know will happen, but we have so little detail around it that we have to start thinking about it really differently. So we know there are going to be banking crises in the future. We don't know what will spark them off, where they'll start. Uh, we know that climate change is real, but we can't predict which forests are going to catch fire or which areas are going to flood. So all of these things really challenge our traditional ways of thinking and working um, because we can't do nothing, but we need much more robust ways to start thinking about how we plan for events where there's so much uncertainty around them. One of the things you talk about in the book is the need as you just said, really, for proper scenario planning, for having enough slack to cope for these different scenarios, which is the exact opposite, as you say, of the lean, mean, super efficient approach that uh, the government sets out to take, though obviously it hasn't taken. It's agonising enough for most of us to be observing what's happening in the government's approach. But given that you literally laid out what should be done to prepare for scenarios like this, and hasn't been. Does that make it feel even worse? <laughs> um, I don't know. I think, I think it's probably set, fair to say. I have a somewhat tragic view of life, which is I think that the vast proportion of things that we say and do will turn out to be pointless. But that doesn't matter. The point is still to try. And that life is about trying. And there are no guarantees, except that if you try nothing, nothing will change. And so I have a pretty kind of resilient, um, energetic view of this, which is, okay, so there are no guarantees. That's life. You have to do the things you believe in. You have to do the things you think have a chance of success. And, um, and then you give it your best shot. And that's just what life is. So, um, so I guess you could say I'm relatively comfortable with uh, uncertainty. I'm extremely uncomfortable, impatient, and deeply frustrated by passivity or by ideologies that just are stupid. So I think, you know, the whole ideology that has imagined that super efficiency and austerity was ever going to be the answer to the mess we found ourselves in 2008. That I find painful mm. because it's, you know, there's an absence of evidence-based strategy. It's an absence of good reasoning. And I had a very interesting conversation with um, Gert Gigerenza the other day, who's one of the kind of leading thinkers about f the future, who said, you know, we have to cut decision makers some slack which is to say they're always going to make uh, decisions that don't turn out well but what we have to demand from them is that they can explain rationally and coherently why they made those decisions and I think that's a really outstanding point because nobody's going to get it right all the time but what as citizens we have a right to expect from our government for example is that they made decisions in our best interest with the best information available 
with a good cross-section of people debating and discussing it and working out what the potential upsides and downsides were. And so what I think is really frustrating for all of us is when that very reasonable expectation is flouted. Mm, Absolutely. Now, in your book, you say that we've moved from a complicated world to a complex one. Can you explain the difference? Yeah, I can. Um, so so I think the best way of explaining this, perhaps, is um, to think of those days when we used to go on airplanes. Right? So we would go to the airport and we'd probably check our bags. And, um, and that is a complicated process. There are usually several different companies involved. One company runs the airport, another company often provides the check-in staff, and somebody else does the baggage handling. So it's very complicated actually getting your suitcase to the right plane and at the other end, which generally most of the time does work. It's complicated because there are lots of moving parts, literally, uh, but it's only complicated because it is the same every time. Pretty much every bag is the same, every day it's the same. So it's very repeat, it's very, it's full of repetition and you can optimize it for efficiency. That really does work uh, because it's the same every single day, regardless of who's touching the suitcase. Um, Complex, however, is what you encounter once you're in the plane and in the air, which is there are all sorts of uncertainties now, which you can't predict. You don't know whether there'll be a geese strike. You don't know whether a part in the very complex machinery that runs the plane might fail, or there might be a bug in the software, or that you might get some very, very sudden weather event. And the uncertainties are so prolific in that context that people who design airplanes design them with more safety features than are needed, with more engines than are needed, and more operating systems than are needed. Now that's inefficient because you have lots of things you might never use, but you do that because it's the only protection against uncertainty. So what I think is becoming really important in any kind of organization and indeed in individual lives is to be able to tell the difference between what's complicated and what's complex. For me to go and do my shopping at the local supermarket is complicated and quite tedious usually, but it isn't really very complex. But for me to try to think about how I'm going to plan October, which is what I was doing just before we started talking, that's complex because there's so many variables over which I have no control, but which will exert a huge influence. So that's the point at which I need quite a lot of slack in the calendar in case all sorts of stuff crops up that I have no uh, insight into right now. I was thinking that your job, more than most, not your job, your work must be more complex. In one sense, everybody's work is complex now, but yours has so many moving parts and uh, the stuff that doesn't involve sitting at home writing is dependent on so many other factors. So how has your work life changed since lockdown? Which strands are still running relatively normally, in inverted commas, and which aren't? Hmm. 
Well, actually, in a very strange way, very little of my life has changed. The only thing that's changed is the stuff I used to do all over the world in person, I now do from my desk. Um, and I'm not unhappy about that because I live in a beautiful place that I love. And actually spending more time here for me is really quite a treat. But what I miss isn't really the travel. I miss both the feedback I get when I talk to people, but also what I learn meeting new people in new places. And, you know, there's been a lot talked about how efficient working from home is and how productive everybody is and how great it is not spending hours every day commuting. I get that. But I'm also struck by two things. One is when I go to different companies or countries and meet people, I learn a lot about the different contexts in which work is happening of a kind that I couldn't ever pick up on from a phone call. And that really galvanizes a lot of my thinking. And I'm doing a lot of kind of reality checking in terms of the way I'm thinking. Does it work in this context? Does it feel relevant in this context? And the other thing I'm very struck by is that, you know, I can sit at my desk all day long, which I do, doing webinars and podcasts and emailing people and doing phone calls and reading stuff and writing stuff. But it can start to feel like an assembly line just one thing after another. And when it does, it starts to feel kind of meaningless, to be honest. You know, you're just going through one damn thing after another. And I think, you know, what that shows is actually how much meaning at work we get from other people, from being together to thinking about things together, to seeing things collectively that we couldn't see on our own, and I've written about this for a long time. And I think people have often thought, well, that's just all a bit sentimental or it's a bit girly. But I will maintain to my dying days that actually people don't really work for companies and they don't really work for money, except to the degree you know, that they need to keep body and soul together. What motivates people is their colleagues, their co-workers, their customers, their sense that they're doing something meaningful with and for each other. And when you look at organizations that go through real crises, and there's a whole chapter in my book on existential crises for individuals and for companies, people in companies will put go through hell to save the company, not really because it's the company, but because it's what they all have in common. And I think most businesses hugely underestimate that. And I think the gig economy flies in the face of it because it treats people as if they have no meaning or value, just kind of as widgets. It treats customers the same way. And the consequence is nobody really cares about them. I was really shocked to read that you had talked to execs and leaders who said they didn't have any friends at work. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, that's kind of the point of going to work. I haven't gone to work for some years because I've been freelance working from home as a writer and doing other things for the last seven years. But the thing I miss most about having a job is, is colleagues. 
And uh, and most of my friends are people I've met in the different workplaces I've worked in. I cannot imagine, well, I can now having had seven years of working on my own, but that's after, you know, kind of 25 years of working in offices and accumulated a lot of friends. I think what we're asking people to do now is literally inhuman. And one of my biggest anxieties is that having found that companies can shovel their employees at home, why wouldn't they? And how can we stop them doing that? Because what will be lost will be enormous. Well, I completely agree. And um, I think it's it's extraordinary, very dismaying that many people at work think it's not appropriate to make friends at work. You know, and I, I have to say, I'm, I'm somewhat, I mean, I'm definitely aghast and somewhat baffled by this mm. view. You know, I don't quite know what they think is going to happen to them if they were to make friends. Um, but I hear this a lot, you know, that one really wants to keep a distance from the work and a distance from one's colleague and go in and just be totally professional and somehow not engage emotionally at all. I think actually that's impossible. And I definitely, you know, and I think of all the hundreds or even thousands of people I've employed, I don't think any of them behaved in that way. Um, I don't think it's possible for companies to be creative or innovative if the people in them don't have high levels of trust, respect, and some sense of solidarity with the people that they work with. I mean, the whole premise of a company is that groups of people working together can see more ideas and opportunities than individuals working alone. But you have to care to put the effort in. And people honestly they don't care about the company name. They don't care about the logo or the tagline. And many of them don't really, frankly, care very much about the products or the customers. They care about the quality of experience they have in their working day. Mm. And that is largely not down to bean bags or colorful walls. It's down to people. And, you know, it's definitely the case that there is a trend, and there has been for 100 years under the guise of so-called scientific management, to try to make work into essentially a mechanical exercise. And I think one of the things that's really becoming quite interesting in terms of that argument is technology facilitates that, but it also carries with it quite a sting in the tail, which is the more you think of your business business as a machine and the more you're using generic technology, the more your business is just like everybody else's, in which case it gives you no advantage at all. So, what, so you have to think about, okay, so what makes a company different? Well, it's how it feels. Well, where does that come from? Well, it comes from the people who care to invest their working life in it. So I think this, um, you know, I think scientific management has absolutely finally hit the buffers. And I think even people who are greater lovers of technology than I am have come to realize that no matter how much of this stuff you have, if everybody has the same thing, your only point of differentiation is going to be the quality of people and the quality of interactions between them that your culture and your environment can facilitate. Absolutely, absolutely. But then given that also that so much of work involves 
or good work involves impromptu conversations in a corridor, yeah. stumbling across somebody else in another team or another office, um, you know, having a chat in the ladies' loo. All these things build up the warp and weft of a working life, but they also build up what you produce in your work. What you do is partly a product of those conversations. And I don't see how we can get that kind of serendipity if people are all stuck in front of their computers forever. And given that in the short to medium term, they are going to be, do you have any thoughts on what Mm. can be done about that? Yeah. Well, the first thing I'd say is I agree with you and I am staggered. The other day I got caught in um, an email exchange trying to, uh, trying to change one small thing. And honest to God, it must have taken 35 emails. I mean, it was just, it was insane. And you, it was exactly the kind of thing you're talking about. It would have been a three-minute conversation in the hallway. You know, can you do this? Yes, fine. I mean, literally. It was just, I mean, it was a kind of digital clusterfuck. It was absurd. And it just made me more and more angry because it, I mean, it, it probably absorbed half an hour of my time. So I think you're absolutely right on that. Um, I would say there are a couple of things that I'm doing that I think I find helpful. Um, one of the things I'm doing, which is really kind of funny because it, it sounds so obvious, but it also feels so kind of revolutionary, is every now and then I'll call up a colleague without making an appointment, mm. it not being a Zoom call. I just phone them up and say, hey, I was just thinking of you and wondered, you know, what are you up to? How are you getting on? How are you feeling? And I mean, I always do it with some trepidation because we're always now so accustomed to scheduling every single second of our day so that nothing is spontaneous. But I've been really struck by how pleased people are. It's like, oh, wow, this is like, you know, life as we knew it. (laughs) So that's kind of nice, you know, so it's a a sort of deliberate spontaneity that isn't an oxymoron I've started sending postcards to lots of my friends because I don't actually have very much to say to them because not very much is happening right um but I think but you can send somebody a a beautiful object just a beautiful picture that's enough um so so I'm doing things that are sort of pointless except that they make people feel good. And actually in the postcard thing, I'm astounded by how many postcards I got back, which I didn't expect at all, which implies to me that people really liked the idea. So I think some of this, you know, dare I say it, old world technology is quite usefully dusted off because while it's imperfect, it's definitely better than this thing of Everything has to be scheduled in advance. Uh, everything has to be everything has to be treated like it's work. Um, and I was very struck the other day. I was having a conversation with a friend of mine, and you know the conversation started at five, and you know almost bang on the dot at six. She said, "Oh well, you know I better go now." And I thought that's interesting. She treated it like an appointment. That's bad. As it wasn't, it was just a chat, and um, and I, so I'm I'm quite uncomfortable with the way that working from home is turning everything we do into work. 
Yes, interesting. I had a, a, a Skype call with a couple of former colleagues just for drinks and chat on Friday night, and we talked for four and a half hours. We couldn't believe it. That's a triumph. That's a triumph. You're doing better than I am. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's really interesting because I did a gin tasting, online gin tasting with some friends, and we all bought the same gins. And then one of our friends, who's a big foodie, did the tasting notes and all this stuff, and we did that. And it was so funny because after an hour I was up, it almost teetered on stopping. And then I think because, you know, a few of us were really enjoying it, we kind of pushed it past that one hour barrier. And then it went on for quite a while until somebody had to go and say, I mean, I can't believe this, but they had actually booked another call. I hope not another gin tasting. But I think we have to be really on our guard against this kind of work ethos Mm. starting to... um, design our lives mm. efficiency efficiency because right. because exactly. as, as you say most of it's wasted anyway <laughs> so if yeah. you if you start seeing and also it means that the temptation would be or it, it could be to start seeing even friendships in a kind of transactional way and when a friendship exactly. is transactional it's the end of a friendship yes and i think um you know, when I talk to a lot of, of pe- young, younger leaders, rising leaders, they definitely understand networking, but I'm not sure they do understand friendship. Mm. And um, and what they say is that the pressure of work, the volume of work, having kids and family and stuff has really eroded their time for friendship. And I think this is this is a disaster because you know, who are they going to spend their lives with when they're not working? And who's going to tell them the truth um, with no agenda except their own well-being? And I was really surprised, and I shouldn't have been surprised, but I was surprised when I interviewed a number of business leaders about how they survived the existential crisis of their companies. And every single one of them said, you know, I could never have got through it without my friends, mm-hmm. you know, who sometimes would give me advice or some, sometimes some kind of brutal advice. Sometimes would just say, wow, you're really fried. Let's go out for a drink, you know, any number of things. But who, who understood what it was like, made no judgment, but were operated sort of as mind guards, you know, to make sure that their friends were okay. And and at a time like this, when I mean it's literally yeah. existential stuff, and literally people are, if they are leaving the house, thinking, "Am I going to? Am I going to die? Am I going to infect yeah. someone else and kill them?" I mean, this is such existential stuff. It seems if you're not thinking about who matters in your life and who you matter to, then mm. you're, you're never going to be if you're not doing it now. I think that's right, and I'm really glad you mentioned that because. I'm very struck by the degree to which nobody's talking about the kind of background anxiety that everyone, or at least most people, are suffering from, which is, you know, when I cough, what kind of cough is that? Mm -hmm. If I wake up in the morning with a sore throat, you know, does that mean something or not? Um, If I feel warm in the night, is that because I often feel warm in the night, you know, because I have too many covers on the bed or... Does that mean something? And I think this is really hard on people. And so everybody needs people with whom they can 
at least acknowledge that that's true and maybe even laugh about it a little bit mm. um, with people who they know, you know, nevertheless do really care about. I think uh, for many people, it's surfacing in their dreams, actually, in the night. I know it is for me. And um, I mean, I was on a, um, a Zoom board call last night and I started coughing in a dry cough kind of way. <laughs> and, uh, and I was thinking, oh, yeah. my God, uh, as exactly as you say. And in yeah. fact, in fact, a few weeks ago, I um, I suddenly felt a bit sick and of course google symptoms and of course it's one of about six million symptoms possible yes. symptoms and um and then you know kept away from my partner for a couple of days slept in separate rooms things were very tense and mm. um and in fact i wrote something about about how the kind of um domino effect of all this now uh, and how we don't know how you're both living with the fear of getting ill yourself and the fear of killing the people you love most and that's, that's right. an unbearable weight to carry actually and yet yeah. on top of that we're all meant to be you know getting on with work creating what lives we can for ourselves <laughs> and you know and I did I heard someone say the other day um you know uh, something like don't worry about your productivity it's a fucking pandemic and I thought well yes exactly not yeah. that we should all give up and lie under the duvet and say oh it's all impossible but these are literally life or death issues and we can't we can't pretend they're not no I think that's right and I wrote a blog post a couple of weeks ago because um somebody had made a mistake and kind of they'd asked me would I do a speaking engagement for them and I said yes and the next thing I knew they were marketing it before we'd agreed a date mm. and it's the kind of thing that really I, I'm so afraid of doing this myself that it really sort of tipped me over the edge and I got quite angry and then I stopped myself and thought hang on a second Margaret this isn't a bad person and it wasn't somebody I knew very well but I thought you know chances are this is not a bad person arrogantly seizing my time this is somebody who's anxious and distracted and that's really when I started noticing lots of small things taking too long getting too complicated I noticed lots of people making lots of very small errors. And I thought this is a moment in which we really do have to cut each other some slack mm. because that's though all of those little mistakes, that's where the anxiety is showing up. It's not showing up in people having screaming heebie-jeebies. Mm. It's, it's showing up in tiredness and it's, it's showing up in little, an accumulation of little errors. And I think we have to, you know, we have to be a lot more forgiving mm. than perhaps we would have been before. I agree. And and probably the people we're talking about, many of them are people whose income has not yet been massively threatened, though I know many people whose has. I mean, I've, I've you know, taken a big cut in income, but I have some financial slack because my brother died last year but you know otherwise I'd be very worried and of course many yeah. many people are very worried and to go back to the gig economy point I mean you and I have discussed this 
before, but mm. I think I actually heard in uh, in a Zoom meeting the other day a CEO say, "Well, we'll be taking the opportunity to, uh, you know, buy in more services." And I thought, "Oh no, that's you know more jobs lost, and that's mm-hmm. more people having to work as part of a precariat, and yeah. that's bad enough at the best of times. But obviously, in a pandemic, it's an absolute disaster because you have no security, no savings mm. to fall back on, no nothing. And I'm just wondering." huge question very difficult to answer but what can we do to halt that trend that shift which is so bad for the well-being of our society Mm. well it's interesting I mean I'm unclear in my own mind as to whether the pandemic has made it worse or better because I think many of the organizations I work with, and it's by no means a representative sample, but many of them are starting to realize that actually having a really committed, informed, connected workforce is the only thing that's letting them stay in business. So that I I regard as quite encouraging. I think the business leaders that take from this exactly the wrong message, in in other words, we have to get even more efficient, you know, which I think is catastrophically the wrong response. I think sooner or later what they'll discover is they have made their companies more fragile and um, and that the more they throw efficiency at uncertainty, the more fragile their companies will become mm. because they don't have, they're not creating any loyalty from the uh, zero hours contractors with whom they work. Um, Those contractors may well go to other companies that treat them better. They will more easily go to companies that offer them more in the way of security. And so they could easily find themselves, as many companies have, dependent on people who don't care about them at all. And, you know, I know a number of companies that have found this with their suppliers, you know, where they thought it was terribly cunning to, you know, emulate Tesco and treat their suppliers like dirt and underpay them and drive, you know, what they imagine to be really fantastically hard bargains. And now when their suppliers have a choice about who they're going to prioritize in terms of delivering supplies, they are out in the cold. And so I think this is a moment for thoughtful leaders to sit back and think about the degree to which organizational resilience is a function of the quality of relationships you have with everybody on whom your business depends. And if there are poor relationships, then your resilience is weakened. Mm. And I definitely know of companies that are taking this very seriously. They're even trying to concoct for themselves a measure of their own resilience, which is both, you know, how much spare cash do we have in the bank, but also how might we measure the quality of our relationships vis-a-vis resilience. And I think they're definitely on to something because what they're trying to do is prove to their investors that come hell or high water, they are prepared But um, given the amount of uncertainty in the environment these days, I think the decision makers who decide, oh, no, austerity did so well for us last time, let's do more of it. I think they are taking gigantic gambles with their companies 
And I would advise people working in those companies to find a safe haven. Mm. I mean, we only need to look at the care sector to see that people on insecure contracts who continue to go into work literally killed the people they were meant to be looking after. So the stakes really couldn't be higher in, in all kinds of sectors. That's right, because they couldn't afford not to go to work. Well, when you have a working relationship or an employment contract with someone who is highly motivated to bring their illness to work, you have a problem. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that uh, everyone will be talking about now is the need to be flexible, adaptable, agile, all those other buzzwords that the business world loves. Um, but you have actually demonstrated those in a, in a very real way in that you started off as a BBC producer, uh, became a tech entrepreneur and have done all the other things you've done since. What would you say were the skills you developed as a producer that enabled you to move into all those other sectors with so successfully? Yeah, I think, I mean, the first thing I'd say is absolutely none of this was planned. It was <laughs> sort of instinctive and improvised. Um, I would say there are two things. One is I have a lot of energy and and that helps. Um I mean I think I think energy is is a characteristic of of people who achieve a lot. Mm. Um but I think the other thing the the thread running through all this is um I've been lucky to I think become very very good at working with highly creative people. I think I'm good at spotting them. I'm good at giving them a lot of freedom. I'm good at um, finding really challenging work for them to do, protecting them while they're doing it, um, and loving the ups and downs of that work. Um, Uncertainty, as we discussed before, doesn't particularly phase me. And the only thing that drives me crazy is repeating myself, right? So, and I think, you know, because many people said, oh, my God, Margaret, you know, you used to make these wonderful radio and television programs, and now you're running a tech company, you know, have you lost your soul? And my view was, you know, the people I was working with, designers, architects, engineers, you know, these are highly creative people, and working well with highly creative people is what I do and what I love doing. And, um, And I think... What's very interesting is I get asked by a lot of corporate leaders, you know, what can we do to make our people more creative? And the short answer to that question is, well, you don't have to make them creative. They are creative. I think almost everybody is creative. So the first thing you have to do is look at what are you doing to stop them? And a huge amount of management stops creativity, nips it in the bud. So how much of that are you actually prepared to throw out? Because honestly, if you're not prepared to throw out the targets and the KPIs and the bonuses and the incentives and the incentive thinking, I don't think you stand a chance. Because all of this stuff is counter-creative. All of it is trying to oil the machine. And, um, and I think what I, I understood very instinctively was 
if you give creative people a safe environment where they're trusted and very clear parameters about what's expected, you know, like if I was making a radio program that was going on out on Tuesday, that meant it really did have to be done and dusted by Monday, right? You know, this wasn't negotiable. Yeah, right? yeah. But within those parameters and those boundaries, there is huge freedom to do wonderful work. And um, and I think also to have fun at work. And I take fun really seriously because I think it's energizing. So I think though that's really the connective tissue in my work. And I have from time to time found myself in situations where I wasn't having fun and or where I felt I was actually getting quite boring to myself. <laughs> and those were moments where I thought, right, I got to get out of here. I got to go do something else. You know, I just, I, I don't even know what it is. But I can see that either I'm repeating myself so much or the environment has changed so much that it's time to move on. So also probably a low uh, boredom threshold. Fascinating. And and I love the fact that you talk about the need to think like an artist um, and how artists, uh, I, I like you, I've interviewed hundreds of artists and it's all about grappling with uncertainty, nuance, yeah. ambiguity, etc. Um, the other thing about art is that it's not for anything. It's not meant to be helpful. It's not meant to have an argument. It's not meant to change anything. It's just about trying to tell some kind of truth. And given that, I'm wondering sort of practically how that perspective, I, I think going, going back to what you've just said, I think removing the nonsense actually is a part of it because mm -hmm. even, even for myself as a, as a journalist and writer, in my little forays into the business world, being told I have to speak in a certain way, which, you know, to kind of, you know, go for the company values or its stated purpose or its mission, which I just think it's all nonsense. <laughs> and and it, it, to talk about thought leadership, and I meant to put on a CV stuff that I wouldn't dream of putting because it's not how I write. And I think it's partly about forcing people into uh, forcing square pegs into round holes in a way that's completely unhelpful and um and so I'm just wondering about the kind of uncertainty ambiguity nuancing how how people who are not at the top of the food chain in the business world can bring that to work and not be kind of slapped down mm. well I think to a significant degree it's got to be about finding the right kind of organization to work mm. in so one that feels if freedom and autonomy are important to you, one where you feel you're going to get some of that. And those organizations definitely do exist. I think the idea that, no, no, I have to go into some, you know, big monolithic organization and find my little square um, in which I'm allowed to operate. I, I think just there are a lot more opportunities than that. But I also feel really strongly that the way you think about work changes how you experience it. So I remember years ago, I was asked to make a film for uh, BBC Two about how the rabbit came to be introduced into England. And I won't bore you with how I got this ridiculous assignment, but let me just say that, you know, it was not a subject close to my heart, not then <laughs> and not now. Um, but, you know, it was in a series of programs that I worked on and, um, and so I pretty much had to do it. 
But then I said to myself, okay, so I don't really care how the rabbit came to be introduced into England, um, which was in sort of the 13th century. But I'm a filmmaker, so I need to create something in this project for me that's a challenge. And so what I decided was I'd never made a funny film before. And obviously this is not a riotously hilarious subject, but I thought, well, you can do the history as meticulously as ever, um, but do it in a way that's witty. So I decided that every single shot in this film would have rabbits in it, live rabbits, <laughs> at which point I also learned a lot about professional animal wranglers. Um, <laughs> but the point of the story is um, I did make the film and every single shot, bar the stills, had live rabbits in it. Um, the point was, even within this, to me, rather banal assignment, I found something for me. Now, the series editor didn't really care about live rabbits one way or the other, but I wanted to make the kind of film I hadn't made before, which was good, a really rigorous history, but with a lighter touch. So, so e as I say, you know, even in a, on a project that, didn't really speak to my soul I could do something I could in the way I thought about it I could make it mine mm. and I think that that's a good approach to take when you're given assignments or in a place we think actually this does not thrill me to bits think okay so what can I add to it or how do can I think about it that identifies an element that does really matter to me that's so interesting. And I'm, I'm wondering if that might be helpful now that, frankly, with uh, a looming terrible recession and likely high unemployment, I know lots of people have, particularly younger people, have been, have absorbed the message that work should all be about, you know, purpose and passion and creativity. Mm. And that's all lovely. But frankly, the options are going to be, you know, quite limited. And I'm wondering if part of what you've just said can be part of how to approach it that if you bring those qualities to any task or any role you can develop something that is useful to you when the opportunities are then uh you know when there are more of them yeah I, I mean I think that's right I mean you know at the beginning of my career I have did have some desperately dreary jobs <laughs> one of my earliest jobs was um as a dictation typist transcribing parliamentary debates. It's hard to think of anything much more tedious than that, honestly. However, um, I just thought, well, this is, a, and, it, and it was, you know, it was only for a month, but I thought, well, you know, actually I bet if you do this at the end of a month, you will be a shit hot typist. Mm. And I am. Mm. And the consequence of that is that generally when I interview people, I just type it as I go along because I'm still a shit hot typist. Yeah. And it means I don't have to transcribe my interviews, which saves me a fortune and a ton of time. Wow. So, so I think, I mean, I realize that it's often hard to find what is the thing going to be. But, um, and if you absolutely can't find it, maybe you look for something else. But I think if you really focus, you can find something. I mean, it's interesting. My daughter at the moment, you know, is doing farm laboring on the farm next door to us. Oh. This is not really what she wants to do with her life oh. at all. 
but on the other hand, she thought, well, I'm going to be outside. I'm going to be away from screens. It's going to help the farm shop stay in business and I'm going to get fit. So it's going to be good exercise. So there's usually something you can find that makes it your job rather than just working for the man. Yes. You've talked about, in our email exchange, you talked about the need for blank sheet thinking in the current circumstances. Could you say a bit more about this? Yeah, sure. Um, So as I said, I work with lots of different companies and I would say, and this is a bit of a gross generalization, but I would say that they are on kind of two ends of of a spectrum. One is how soon can we get back to business as usual and how little do we have to change in the meantime? Um, So they're kind of translating processes from one place to another, but that's pretty much it. And the other end of the spectrum is they're saying, okay, everything's changed. So if we were going to start this business today, how would we do it? And I, my observation from this absolutely random non-representative sample, the first group experiences a great sense of loss. So because they're trying to translate without changing anything, they're, they're, they have a great sense of what they've lost in the translation and no sense of gain. Mm. And in the, in the fresh sheet thinking... There's real energy and excitement, which is often, oh, great, all that other rubbish we were doing, we can chuck overboard. Some of it's that. And some of it's, oh, right, so I get it. We used to be this, and now we're that. And now it's a really clear vision. And actually, we can use this moment to kind of leapfrog some of the stuff we were mired in. And then there's real energy and creativity and excitement because that's very focused on the future. And it isn't a sense of loss, it's a sense of potential gain. And what I think is really interesting is that I'm seeing also that these two mindsets coexist in the same organization. Mm. And that um, the people who are just kind of clinging, what I think of as clinging to the side of the pool, are a bit lost, dazed, and confused. And the people who suddenly have this vision of what their department or their part of the business could be, um, they're very energized and discovering in themselves and their colleagues levels of creativity they perhaps hadn't seen before. So these are people who basically have a very positive response to change. And instead of thinking of it as loss, think of it as something new and fresh. And they're doing really well. And I think that's the kind of heart and soul of adaptability when we talk about it, which is they're not translating. They're able to think afresh. And those people are, so to speak, having a good pandemic. Very interesting. And and that ties in with your own uh, definition of optimism. You always describe yourself as an optimist. And I always slightly blanch when I hear people describe themselves. Yeah, yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> but, um, you know, I'm a fan of Gramsci's view on this pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will. But I don't think it's very far apart, actually, because, it, you know, yours is all about fighting spirit and looking out for fresh opportunities. Yeah. And I think, you know, it can sound a little um, a bit Disney-fied, you know, if one isn't careful. But I think, um, you know, I think the fighting spirit is the heart and soul of it. Mm. And, um, and I also think it allows you 
to move out of the danger zone faster because clinging to the past and just trying to kind of convert the present into something that looks a bit like the past. I don't think it's always doomed, but I think it it's very hard to find it satisfying. Mm. Um, I think the kind of, you know, what I think of as Disneyfied optimism is really, oh, don't worry, everything will be fine. You know, nobody's convinced by that. <laughs> Because there's no logic behind it. It's just starry-eyed. And that I'm not. I mean, I quite often think, you know, everything will not be fine. But the question, you know, the more practical, useful question is, okay, so what can I do to make things better now? Mm. And there's got to be something. There's got to be something. And I'm so, you know, I'm, I mean, I'm so inspired by many of the people in my book but also by many people I've known who in dire circumstances, you know, found a way through. I think about this often with regard to migrants. Mm. I think of it often with regard to the African-American population in America right now. You know, the history is changed by people who find the way through. It is not changed by people who say, don't worry, everything will be fine. And it is not changed by people who say we're doomed. I couldn't agree more. I I loved what you said about late style, the creative outpourings Mm. like King Lear, Beethoven's late work, Schubert's Winterreiser and so on, which are all about intimations of mortality. Now the entire planet has a massive great intimation of mortality. What individually do you think how we, can we use this as individuals in relation to our own working life? Well, I think we have to ask ourselves a hard question. And I think, you know, I've been asking myself this question since I was 30, which is when my first husband was killed, mm. which is, okay, it's pretty much always now or never time. So how are you going to use it so that it really counts? And... You know, I mean, that sounds like a bit of a burden to bear, but actually, I think it makes life more exciting and more galvanizing. I don't want to piss around. I don't want to just waste my time here. I don't know how much I'm going to have, so I want to make it worth it. I want to make it worth it to me, and I really want to make it worth it to other people that I leave behind. And, you know, in my most optimistic moments, I hope quite a lot of other people are feeling that right now too, right? We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, next year, next decade. So let's make it worth it. And let's let's spend the time we have doing something that leaves other people with a sense of optimism and pleasure and even joy. Absolutely wonderful. I've literally got goose flesh, Margaret. I really have. Thank you so, so much. And um, I hope that uh, at some point on the other side of this, we can meet for a nice glass of wine or something and and just celebrate the fact that the world has not got as bad as it might have otherwise got. Well, I'm counting on it. I'm very much looking forward to it. Thanks so much, Christine. Thank you. Thank you. Wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. If you liked it, I'd be really grateful if you could share it or rate it on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. 
And if you want to find out how I dealt with my own big work interruption, you could check out my book, The Art of Not Falling Apart, which is recommended lockdown reading in The Guardian and The Eye. Here's to not falling apart and to doing work that works for all of us. And I hope you'll join me again next week.